Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Bethan. Hi, I'm Bob. And I'm Nadine. And as you may have noticed, we've got a couple of co-hosts tonight. So we have been joined by the hosts of Twisted Britain. Twisted Britain is a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. And your normal hosts are me, Bob Dale. I'm me, Nadine Rawl. We're just a couple of friends who met in the pub and we developed a friendship based on our mutual love of booze podcasts and pub quizzes. We met in the Settling in Sterling and that's where we usually record. So what Nadine and Bob do, which is a little bit different to us, is they do a story each on their episodes. They do one long story, one short story, and they take it in turns kind of who's going to do that. So we've decided to follow their normal process. So I have got a long story and Nadine has got a short story. What they also like to do is they like to flip a coin to see who's going to go first. So, Mark, do you want to call it and then we'll get them to flip the coin? I'm going to go with heads for Bethan first. And it's tails this time. Oh, it's me! Nadine's going first. Before Nadine gets much more rum down her neck. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So the story I'm doing is called The Little Red Riding Hood Murder. So I stuck with Bob's kind of theme and decided to look up a crime involving the colour red to honour our crossover. Muriel Joan Drinkwater, killer name, was um, a 12-year-old, and she was the youngest of four daughters born to John Percival and Margaret Drinkwater. And on the 27th of June, 1946, she took the school bus home from Penlegar Grammar School and was last seen at 2.30pm. She was singing as she began the one-mile walk home um, to her family farm, Taldudu Farm. Normally when you listen to Twisted Britain, there is a Nadine's word of the week. <laughs> I don't speak Welsh, leave me alone. So, Muriel's path home snaked in and out of Penlegar Woods, and the beginning of the path could be seen from the Drinkwater's farm, and it's been said that Muriel's mother saw her entering the woods that day as she began her walk home. Muriel was never to emerge from the woods, however, and the last person to see her alive was Hubert Hoyles, who was a 13-year-old who passed her on the path as he returned from her family's farm after buying some eggs from the family. Her mother went to the village to look for Muriel when she didn't return home, and when she could not be found, more than a dozen locals began searching the area for her. The very next day, Muriel's body was found in the woods by a police inspector. She'd met a violent and bloody end after being raped. Muriel was shot twice in the chest and beaten in the head. That is a oh, fucking hell, Nadine. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Welcome yeah, to you... Twisted Britain. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Start off as you mean to go on. Jesus. <laughs> So um, two days later, police found one of the murder weapons, which was a World War I era Colt 45. And the Glamorgan police, who were assisted by the 169th Bomb Disposal Unit, used a metal detector to search for a second weapon. They couldn't find it. They couldn't trace it. But they knew there was a second one due to the nature of her injuries. That's a really grim find in the woods. Like, just, I'm not, I'm going to skip over the fact that there was just a police officer there anyway, somehow. But imagine. Well, we found her on the search. Oh, it was part of the search. Yeah. Um, imagine just stumbling across a 13 year old uh, sorry a 12 year old's body the police didn't have any leads on who the murderer was but around this time there were several other women who had met like a similar end so they were like quite it was quite important that they found the murderer and it became quite like a big case there'd been other things in the area that kind of were similar to this one so, yeah so yeah. they were like we need to stop this now yeah definitely this was um, like a serial killer or something yeah they thought so so wow. detectives from scotland yard came to assist in the investigation 
They visited every house within 150 square miles and interviewed 20,000 men in Swansea, which was the nearest big town to where it happened. 20,000, wow. Yeah, 20,000 men. And they also interviewed people in neighbouring towns like Aberdare and Carmarthenshire. Nailed it. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) A description of a person of interest was circulated, and he was described as approximately 30 years old with thick, fluffy hair and wearing brown corduroy trousers and a light brown sports jacket. So a good-looking gentleman, (laughs) well-dressed. Stylish. I know, corduroy, who doesn't love it? Police also circulated photos of the American Army issue gun, which was the Colt 45, and it was particularly notable as perspex had been used to modernize the original wooden stocks next to the grip. So it was quite like an individual. Oh my god! Uh, An individual. Thank you. She doesn't know how to lay off the run, but she's good at reading Uh, the story. It was believed a similar weapon had been used in the murder of a cinema manager in Bristol, but nothing further really came of this information. And the case soon turned cold as the police couldn't find any suspect despite their best efforts. And on the 2nd of July, 1946, Muriel was buried at St. David's Church in Pelengar and over 3,000 people attended the funeral. I suppose like, that's the thing about a child dying at, at that kind of age. And in that way. And in that way, you're going to get people who are like an extensive families and friends and probably other people who were just like, shit this is rubbish we need to like pay respect yeah and it was like a small kind of place that they lived and everybody knew each other kind of thing so it was like the community coming out to support the family and they pay their respects i guess but the police did continue to follow leads even after the case had run kind of cold and in the august of the same year the police appealed to the united states public for assistance as many americans had been stationed in pelangar during world war ii and there was a possibility one of the servicemen had sold the gun and that would provide them with some form of lead. Again, though, unfortunately, nothing came of this and the case went cold again. That must be a massive amount of people to appeal to, not even just the, the kind of British side of it, but when you're appealing to the amount of soldiers that would have been placed in, yeah. in Wales uh, in, during the Second World War, that, that's a huge amount of people. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, they continued their efforts, though, and in 2003, detectives reopened the case in the hope of finding DNA evidence on the gun but it was deemed unsuccessful as too many people had handled the weapon since its discovery. And unfortunately, her clothes had also been misplaced, which is just... Yeah, misplaced is a horrible word to use with any crime. Like, Especially when you think about nowadays, everything gets bagged and tagged and properly put away. But then I suppose we're talking about nearly 80 years ago now, which, I mean, I don't know what they would have done at the time, but you would hope that nobody would just go... And pick stuff up straight away, but I suppose that's probably what happened. Yeah, I think so. But like it somehow got lost. Like that's just that would have been so important. I know. But in two thousand and eight, happy days, a team of retired detectives investigating cold cases found Muriel's clothes. Um they'd been like put away in storage and in in the paper bag that they were kept in, they found the blue coat she was wearing, which I was surprised by because it was deemed it was called the Red Riding Hood murder, but she wasn't wearing a red coat. Was it just because of the woods? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I also don't think the original story of Red Riding Hood, she was wearing red either. Really? No, I think there's... I th- I'm sure it's a Brothers Grimm story, and I don't think she was wearing red, but that's out of my brain rather Is it than like a it. mistranslation, the same way that Cinderella wasn't wearing a glass slipper, but actually one made out of squirrel fur? Cinderella wore a 
squirrel fur shoe. Yeah, it wasn't glass. It was a mistranslation. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Now I'm worried that I've made that up, but I'm no, pretty no, that, sure that's no, true. No, you haven't. That, <laughs> no, it's that's a good fact. We do oh, too wow. many pop quizzes together. That's how we know this yeah, kind of rubbish. It's amazing. I have no interest in facts like that. Jesus. But um, they found her clothes, which was a blue coat, her underwear and her school uniform. And it had been wrapped in a paper bag and put into storage and lost for many years. On the back of the coat, however, was a no longer visible semen stain, but it had been circled with a yellow crayon, which scientists were able to successfully retrieve uh, a DNA profile from, making it, and I think at the time when they did this, it made it the oldest one in the world to be successfully extracted in a murder investigation at the time. Have you just gone for a most in the world? That's usually mine. Sorry. <laughs> um, a familial DNA profile was extracted using a technique called YSTR, but no match was found in the National DNA Database. Hubert Hoyles, who was the 13-year-old kid who saw her as he returned from her farm after buying eggs, had been long suspected by many of the locals, and he was cleared at this point due to the DNA evidence, which he was pretty pleased about, as you can imagine. Well, bad, yeah. Because mm, even if you're not a person of interest to the actual police, if the village thinks, well, you saw her last, you're something to do with it, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. Well, exactly, like constantly defending yourself and being mm. like, no, I passed her on the way home, but I didn't kill her. yeah. Um, in 2009, Welsh police began in re- uh, reinvestigating a link with the murder of 11-year-old Sheila Martin, who was raped and strangled only 250 miles away in Sunhill Wood, Falcon Green in Kent on the 7th of July 1946, which was only 10 days after Muriel's murder. Both girls were murdered in a wood within a half mile of their homes. South Wales police detectives requested the original case file from Kent Police to determine if there was a connection, but seemingly they couldn't find one, even though there was all those similarities. Like, surely that would, they'd have some sort of link with them. That's, That's crazy. what I was thinking. Like, mm. any similarities, like, two children of that age strangled and murdered. Yeah, like similar MOs. It, to me, screams the same thing. But they couldn't find any actual tangible or evidence-based link between the two murders, so that kind of ran cold too. Um, There have been other theories about who committed the crime. For example, Welsh true crime author Neil Milkins has theorised that notorious child murderer Harold Jones, who lived between 1906 and 1971, was responsible for both murders. He says that Muriel's murder and that of two other young girls in Abertillery in the early 1920s have striking similarities, and Jones was set out of he was well he was like let out of prison at around the time of Muriel's death so he would have been around and able to commit the crime at the point um, mm. Jones was a savage killer who sexually assaulted and brutally murdered the two girls in Abertillery days apart from each other he confessed to his crimes and boasted about how he evaded arrest for some time and would claim that the voices in his head had made him do it and he was also known to revisit the scenes of his crimes but even with all this he never did confess to the murder of Muriel so it's like a good theory, but I don't see why he wouldn't confess to Muriel if he confessed to the other ones. Kind of sounds like he was a bit of a he was a bit of a mad guy, but was happy to take responsibility for everything except the actual murder itself. Yeah, so yeah. I don't think it. Like, it's a good theory, and like I think this Neil Milkins guy has like written books about it and stuff. So maybe if I read that, I'd be a bit more swayed. But from what I could read briefly online, I I don't think it's a very good theory to be honest. Yeah, quick interjection here. Twisted Britain doesn't rely on uh, solid facts, <laughs> what we can find for our stories. 
Um, in 2010, the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Council on National Records and Archives closed off public access to the case. The public can now no longer access the Muriel Drinkwater files by Freedom of Information Act requests or in person at the Archives Office in Kew. And the reason given for sealing off the files was that it could potentially help the police catch the perpetrator. So just now, as it stands, Muriel's death remains completely unsolved with absolutely no leads. And now we can't even access the files for them to try and make more headway in it? I guess, it, you know, there would be some information contained in those files that only the murderer would know. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? Mm. Oh, that's a good or point. Or is it a cover-up and they're trying to cover up something that's in those files that somebody now would know about? Oh, we do love a cover-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of went straight to the cover-up. Like, why not let the access to it? But then, Mark, oh. you make a really good point there that if there's something there that only the killer would know... You know, we've heard of loads of cases where that's how somebody gets caught out. Yeah, I think it's like a really sad case. Like she was such a young girl and she was jovially walking home from school, singing a little song to herself. You described that beautifully, Nadine. But do you know what? <laughs> no, I love that because I can picture her skipping along and then getting murdered. But um, it reminded me a lot of the Jodie Jones episode that we covered on Seeing Red, um, yeah. I don't know, like two months ago. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's got some kind of, it's got a twinge of similarity to it for sure. Yeah, wooded area, same kind of age, and quite a brutal murder as well. Mm. Yeah, like I think it was probably opportunistic, but I guess like she probably walked home the same way every day, so somebody could have planned to do it, I suppose. It's still technically an open, ongoing investigation right now. But yeah, so yeah, they've closed it down so that nobody can access it, but they're still, I think, like looking into it. That's crazy. Mm. Mm, interesting one. Yeah, it was like one I've not heard before, and me and Bob decided to do the, the red theme, so I came across it kind of by chance, but I thought it was quite interesting. And I think that might be the oldest case we've featured on our show. Oh, nice. We're not like you guys. We don't do very much historical. We've done some around kind of like the 50s, I think, with the guy that was in Broadmoor. Mm, John Strathmore. Oh, yeah. Oh, Bob loves the history ones. Yeah, it's great for us to go back a bit further. I love it. Nothing from like the 1800s like you guys do. I can't help myself. There's just something really intriguing about these historic crimes because it's almost like it's a completely separate life and lifestyle and world to what we're living in now. Uh, you know, we're, we're sat here in front of two computers at other sides of the, co- of the country recording things, whereas then you look at yeah. these things from the early 1800s and you go, that must have just been so different to where we are now. Well, like, you could write a letter from the Isle of Wight and pretend someone wasn't able to write back and <laughs> it was a bit weird, but not the end of the world. Like, what the fuck? Now I'd be literally FaceTiming the person being like, put her on the phone. Yeah, where the fuck are you? <laughs> I like that lovely teaser for the Twisted Britain episode that's coming out in a couple exactly, of weeks. Exactly, a little bit of a link for you guys if you want to know why she couldn't write the letter. <laughs> not for any good reasons, if you ask me, but fine. That was great, Nadine. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thanks. It was a bit yeah, short, short and to the point. There wasn't much on it because it's so old and because they didn't get anything on anybody and there was no leads and stuff. But um, I think at some point on our podcast, I'll probably go back and look at that child murderer guy, but that's a bit sad, but maybe I'll do it anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll not do this on your podcast. We'll look <laughs> at a child murderer on our one. Lovely. <laughs> so that leads quite nicely onto my 
case, which is the long story for the show. And the case that I'm going to be telling you guys about is one that was actually suggested by one of our listeners, which is quite nice. So thank you, Connor Jackman, for suggesting the case. And I really hope that you like sort of my take on it and what I kind of found out about it. If anybody else would like to um, suggest a case for us, please do. Um, there are a few in, in the works, actually, that are um, suggested cases. In 1974, 19-year-old tractor driver named Andrew Head was out walking in the countryside. The area in which he was walking was farmland in the village of, which I thought Mark would find hilarious, Cockley Clee. Love it. <laughs> not just Mark. Near to, yeah, not just so everybody See, I'm not that. the only one. Yeah, Cockley Clee. <laughs> um, it's near to Swatham in Norfolk. It was a huge estate owned by Sir Peter Roberts and Lady Roberts. Sir Peter was a third baronet, which is a hereditary title of the lowest order. It is awarded to a common person who is generally referred to as Sir. So it wasn't really that fancy, but they had land. I would still take that title. Yeah. He was a politician for the Conservative Party up until 1966, and his wife had offered the grounds as a refuge for Jewish children who'd fled the war in the 1940s from England, Germany and Austria. She's been described as a really nice woman who was concerned by what was kind of happening to the Jews. And she knew that she had enough money to make a difference. And she even turned one of the cottages into a miniature school because there wasn't one in the village. This case has she nothing seems like a lovely more. woman. Yeah, I thought she seemed really lovely. See, Beth Bethan said all that and then looked at me as in like, isn't that nice? And I'm like, meh. <laughs> well, no, she sounds lovely. I like her. Yeah, I like her too. The case has literally nothing else to do with them, but I really wanted to put that out there. I'm glad I jumped in, even though this has nothing to do with it. Thanks. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew Head was walking through a remote field on the land when he noticed a strange bundle covered in plastic and half hidden in the undergrowth by the side of the road, leading towards Breakhill Farm. Being curious, he lifted the covering slightly and apparently he only needed a slight view to identify that there was a dead body underneath it. He said, quote, I lifted one corner of the cover of the body and that was enough. I could see what it was. I went home and I phoned the police. It doesn't take much to go, that's a body. That's a fucking body. Yeah. What made me laugh with this is his name is Andrew Head and he discovered the body. It was the body of a woman who was missing her head. Shouldn't have made me laugh as much as it did. Mm, but it, nice. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll laugh with you. Thank I like you. the irony. That's fine. On my side. It reminds me of um, in the band ZZ Top, there's three bandmates and one of them has a beard and the other two's surname is Beard or something like that. It always makes me chuckle. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good ZZ Top knowledge. Thank you. So um, back to the actual tragedy of Please. the story. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Mark. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> The woman's legs and arms were bound to her body and she was dressed in a baby pink nightie. I've seen photos of this nightie and it is exactly what you're imagining from this sort of time. So this was in 1974. It was pink, it had ruffles, it had a high neckline. That was so what I was imagining yeah. as well. Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah, definitely. So the police arranged for local farmers to bring combine harvesters to clear the fields around the area and they began a real deep search around everywhere around where this body had been found they were searching for anything that would give them a clue to who the woman was and what had happened with her as well as trying to find her head but sadly <laughs> never <laughs> you know, I mean, the thing that made me laugh as well the way that you said that 
It is serious, though. It's awful, but that is it's funny. Yeah. That is that is terrible, but a passing comment. Oh, they were also trying to find her head. So um, the police did an autopsy on the body. They announced that due to the stages of the decomposition, they believed that she had died in the first or second week of August. She was found on the 27th. They said she had been a petite woman, estimating she was around five foot to five foot, to, uh, five foot two inches tall. So my height. Um, I haven't been able to determine if she was killed by decapitation or whether this had happened once she was dead, but they just never found that. I would say normally that would happen once someone's been murdered. Yeah. So um, the body had been wrapped in a sheet and this sheet was marked with NCR, which is a logo for the National Cash Registers. It was quite an unusual sheet to find in the area. And the NCR company was based in Dundee. So this is Norfolk and this was they were based in Dundee. A collector from the US was able to confirm to the police that the sheeting was from a payroll machine. He was even able to give them the exact model information. But the police inquiry then established that they had sold thousands of that type of machine. So it, it actually was a bit of a dead end. The rope that bound the sheet to the woman was also classed as unique because it was made with four strands rather than the normal five strands. And it appeared to be the sort of rope used in farming um, for someone to use alongside agricultural machinery. So the police then set about trying to trace that as well. And again, Dundee was a place of interest because the rope had been manufactured by a company there in Scotland. But this company was had gone out of business. And again, this was a dead end. So there's definitely a link to north of the border then? There seems to be. Um, it's a weird one because it's trying, you know, trying to see what the link actually meant, and there's not really any answers, which is a bit weird. But it seems weird that you'd have two links to Scotland in a case in Norfolk, and especially to Dundee because it's not one of well, it is one of the bigger towns in Scotland. But you know, you you think it's Scotland straight away, you think Glasgow, Edinburgh, and I mean, we know that Dundee has some industry in there, but having two individual links to to there is more than a coincidence, I would say. Yeah. I would agree. Mm. So I did do a quick kind of Google Maps search for the distance between Dundee and Norfolk. They are over 400 miles apart. So at the moment, like currently with our road system, that would take nine hours to drive. The big bridges in Scotland would have still been there. So it wouldn't have been too far off it at that time. But then you wonder if he worked in industry in Dundee and had just happened to have things with him maybe didn't live there maybe not traveling back and forward but had rope and such like from there if you see what i mean yeah mm, yeah definitely and you're definitely kind of along the same lines as what the police thought actually which is quite interesting so the police spoke to over fifteen thousand people in the course of their investigation and they took over 700 official statements they also sent around household questionnaires and they received over six thousand five hundred of those back but they couldn't find anything out about who the woman was or what had happened to her. They determined that her nightdress was from Marks and Spencers. It's not um, just any nightdress. It's a Marks and Spencers <laughs> nightdress. John Sabine also loved Marks and Spencers pyjamas, you know? Exactly. There we go. We've got some links. Um, <laughs> nightdress had been available to buy around 1969. So they kind of knew that she would have bought it at that time. They knew a little bit. But still, there was no further leads. And they just didn't find anything in those fields that they were searching. Not even her head. Not even her head. The market's <laughs> never been found. Oh, I'm oh going to find God. it. 
So the theories about what had happened to this woman were absolutely endless. People did tend to link the rope and the wrapping. So they were suggesting that maybe the killer was a shopkeeper who'd ordered one of the cash registers for their business. So they'd ordered it, had those things left over from unwrapping it. Or perhaps it was someone who had access to the wrappings once they'd installed the cash register for a shop. Maybe the killer was a farm worker who used the type of rope in their daily business and had found the wrapping, or maybe they used the wrapping and found the rope. Or perhaps the killer had simply found both items. Some people have suggested that perhaps the killer was a delivery driver, which could explain why the rope was from the same area as the sheeting. Since the first ever ATM for NCR was designed and built in Dundee, millions have been shipped to locations all over the world. So it really was a difficult market for the police to explore. And and there were so many possibilities. The death could have been a result of like a domestic incident. So the woman's partner or relative, and then he happened to find stuff to help him dispose of her. But it didn't appear that she was particularly local and there were no households where someone had gone missing or anybody had reported somebody disappearing. So there wasn't really any sort of link there either. Considering the placement of the body, the police did believe it was likely that the killer had some sort of local knowledge because it was in a remote area. That almost kind of like leans towards that delivery driver type thought Mm -hmm. that if you know if you just happen to have a whole load of shit in the back of a van but you were driving back and forward to the same area you would know the area you were going to and you would happen to have stuff from another area in your van i really didn't know where you're gonna go with that i really thought you were about to say like if you had a whole load of shit in the back of your van like a decapitated body you would just stop and pitch out. I, didn't, I didn't know where you were going but not the head not the head The police were kind of saying, you know, if it was someone local and, you know, some guy has killed his wife in a fit of rage or, you know, a crime of passion, would you really travel out into a remote area to dump the body? And also the fact that the removal of her head, was that to stop her from being recognised? Or was it something a bit more sinister? Was there a reason that he'd removed the head? I say he, police were looking at a man in general. Yeah, you kind of make that assumption straight away, don't you? But I would tend to go with that he kind of hmm. assumption. So the hundreds of officers on the case set about tracking down any missing women that were reported missing in sort of the local area or the time scale. They actually managed to track down 109 missing women. So they were really doing a good wow. investigative work there. But they still had no leads on this headless woman and soon they had to give up the searches but they did not give up entirely. So bearing in mind this starts in the 70s, the headless woman's body was exhumed in November 2007, over 30 years after the woman was killed. <laughs> um, it was so that the police could resume investigating who she had been. I mean, what the fuck can they do with a 30-year-old corpse, though? Yeah, but DNA testing had got so much better by this point. You trust me? <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> so there was dna testing there was forensic advances um loads of different investigative tools which had just improved so much they thought we can try and solve this cold case and it had been over 30 years the police still couldn't determine how she had died um but they really wanted to try and solve the mystery of who she was and perhaps who was responsible samples of her toenails her hair and her thigh bone were subjected to dna and isotopic analysis What's so they, isotopic analysis? Bethany? I don't know. I knew it. I knew you wouldn't fucking know. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Is that, that not? Um, I think I might know. 
Is it not isotopes are different types of atom? Are they not like when you get like you do carbon isotope tracing? So when you get like carbon fourteen, carbon fifteen, carbon sixteen, all these different carbons, it's all about the amount of isotopes they carry or something. So it's all about dating how old something is. I think. See, this is know. why we've done it properly. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. You didn't see the look she was giving me while she was saying that, but it was a look of confidence. I'm I swear. <laughs> While she was making it up on a rum-fueled bender. <laughs> That's pretty much my life, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, that I mean, to be fair, that sounds pretty, sounds pretty sound. Like, that would make sense. They, they managed to establish, however, so it, this kind of doesn't really link in with that, they managed to establish that she had been right-handed, which I... Wow. Yeah, I'm not really sure how, but that's what they, they established. She'd been right-handed... Yeah. And You'd probably do that by based on muscle structure, though, wouldn't you? Like after thirty wow. years, how much muscle structure do you have left, though? Yeah, but then okay. would the bones be stronger with the muscle around them? Yeah, so you would have like a bigger right-armed bone than a left arm. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> you you can go dirty on this one if you want. We've got Nadine's word of the week, and then Bob's dirty phrase of the week. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a stronger right arm bone than I do left arm bone. <laughs> they were able to establish that the woman had had at least one child that she'd given birth to in her lifetime. The description was that her pelvic girdle had widened. Ah, I'm saying nothing. So they knew that she had at least given birth to a baby at once in her life, if not more. And they also found another link to Scotland. So they were able to determine that the woman had consumed water that was found in Scotland and that fish and crabs had formed an important part of her diet. So they were able to, again, that was like a third thing that linked her to Scotland, even though she was found in Norfolk, which was a bit strange to them. The testing also confirmed that she was probably from Central Europe, so an area that included Denmark, Germany, Austria and Northern Italy. Well, I suppose mm. you, you've just named a whole load of places that have like seaside, big seaside towns. Well, so. what I'd like to ask is how do fish and crabs link you to Scotland? You get crabs in yeah. do you not? No, it was the water of Scotland. So the water apparently had... Um, I, I don't remember what it was, but the water apparently had something in it that you only find off of the coast of a bit of Scotland. Today's rain will be tomorrow's whiskey. That's all I have to say. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> at this point, the police started to look at cases of missing women again. They looked at the cases of 500 missing women. They found 263 of them alive. And then a further 52 women who had been listed as missing, they were able to determine that they had actually died um, and their bodies hadn't been identified, so they were able to identify another 52 women. 41 women were eliminated from DNA profiles that were taken from their family members. So of that 500 women, they got rid of a good half of them trying to find out who this was. This is like the shittest GCSE maths question. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2008, the police launched a new public appeal. And Andrew Head, who was the guy who found the body originally, he was really, really pleased. By this point, he was 52, but he still lived in the area. And it was still something that really had haunted him since he was a child. Not a child, I suppose he was a teenager, wasn't he? But since he was young, you know, he was really, really pleased to hear that officers were still pursuing the case. And he really hoped that this latest inquiry would be more successful. A news report from the Watton and Swaffen Times 
from May 2008, quoted Inspector Andy Guy, who was leading the inquiry, as saying, usually the first thing an investigative team does is identify the victim. The original team did a thorough job and we will be revisiting the evidence gathered. But we finally believe we have a chance of establishing who this woman was. And once we have done that, we stand a much better chance of solving this. The tragedy seems to be that this woman went missing and nobody seemed to notice. People don't simply disappear off the face of the earth without anyone knowing. No, that's really weird because there's got to be some record of a missing woman somewhere. Yeah, that's it. You would hope so. Especially someone who's had children as well. Yeah, because what have they left behind or run away from? Or like, there's so many questions there. Exactly. And the key, um, the key person who's linked to this, I think when I go into that in a, in a moment, you're then going to kind of maybe think, ah, that makes a bit more sense because, yeah, she had possibly had a child and she wasn't, nobody cared. And it was quite sad, really. So the police wanted to try and trace the murder wom- murdered woman's family if she still had any living because obviously the body had suggested that she'd had a child so was this child still living now the body was then inspected by a forensic anthropologist and a dna profile was recovered but sadly this didn't have any more links again when it was checked against national databases you know how sometimes you put your data into like the my history and stuff none of that came back the investigation team appealed for anybody who was concerned about a friend a relative or a neighbor the technology meant that they could really quickly eliminate any individuals from their inquiries and inspector guy had said we want to hear from anybody with concerns about a missing woman from around this time somebody must have known her and they could hold the key to finding justice we want to know who this woman was and what she was doing in the area at the time of her death The police were also kind of hoping as well, this has been 30 years, perhaps the killer themselves would want to give up the secret because they've been holding on to this for so long. It's always a possibility with a case like this that the person could feel a bit burdened by that knowledge. Or they could be ill at that point in their Mm -hmm. lives, they could be permanently ill. Like a deathbed confession. Yeah, wanting to unburden themselves. So the headless woman was reburied in Swatham Cemetery in June and there was just the police, undertakers and the local vicar that were present. Reverend John Smith led the small group in a short service and he has since described the burial as one of the saddest things he's ever had to do. In 2011, the police made some more appeals to the public. They actually managed to identify 540 missing women from another round of fresh inquiries. So they were really doing a lot of wow, good. Wow, that, that is Yeah, not, yeah not, not solving her murder, but they are helping a lot of people get some closure. Yeah. Um, in 2016, the case was featured on television again. It was reported on twice by BBC News Online. In May 2016, the BBC reported that some students in Abertay University were able to provide the police with some further lines of inquiry. Um, So they reported that psychology and forensic biology students at the city's university spent April looking for stories about the case and reports of other missing people or murders and other attacks in the Dundee, Courier and Evening Telegraph from sort of the dates of January 73 to January 75. Their course tutor, Dr. Penny Woolnoff, said it's a really valuable way for students to put into practice what they learn on their course. So they then submitted their findings to the police. So it was like a real practical. Um, I love that idea. I think yeah. it's a great idea. Yeah. Free, free police work. Yeah. Yeah, they've got that resource there that you might as well use. These people are mm. like training to do that. So why not? Exactly. And it gives them a good practice in getting it done. But also 
that's a fresh pair of eyes. They might have a different way of thinking. Mm. A Norfolk police spokesman said the students' work has generated a couple of leads, which detectives from the major investigations team are now following up on. So they really did find something out. And this was in 2016. Unfortunately, there's been nothing since, so clearly it didn't mm. really lead to anything. Um, they need to say at this point, at this stage of the inquiry, it's too early to say how important these leads will be. Um, it didn't seem like it helped that much because on the 10th of September 2016, the BBC reported that the police had ruled out two more women from their lines of inquiry, but sadly, there's been nothing else unveiled. What's really disturbing about all this is the amount of missing women. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. You would never guess that there would be that many open cases of missing women in, in Britain. Um, and it's a really sad statistic to hear. So at the same time, what was quite impressive was when you were talking about the last bout of missing women, how many was it that they, they wound up finding alive? That was pretty good going. Yeah, like over 500. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm. And that's the thing. It's it's really sad. Like this woman hasn't been identified still, but those families have had a bit of, of closure, a bit of information that, you know, even though it's a sad end to their searches, they can at least now put that person to rest. So Yeah, definitely. So there is one woman who, when you search for this headless woman of Norfolk that is linked constantly on the internet, um, the theory around this is that the body found in Norfolk was that of a woman known only as the Duchess. Wow. Ooh. So... I'm just going to stop I you there. Are you, I knew where you were going to go with this. Do you, either of you mm-hmm. listen to my dad wrote a porno? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. What are you thinking the Duchess is her nickname for? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's a, a character, there's a character in my called, dad wrote the a porno called the Duchess. Called the Duchess. She's really something special. She's quite something. If you haven't listened, you really listen. have to. It just, it, it's the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. Do you know what? It's on my list of things to listen to. I'll have to give it a go. So the Duchess was a prostitute who lived in the docks at Great Yarmouth. She disappeared in mid-1974. She literally disappeared, leaving all of her possessions behind, and nobody knew where she went or why she disappeared. Due to the nature of her job and her lifestyle, there wasn't really anybody to report her missing. Nobody made much of an effort to find her officially. So there were records of this woman because she'd apparently been arrested and held in custody at least at one point. But those documents were damaged or destroyed. I don't know whether it was maliciously. I think I feel like it was just an accident. But they were damaged at some point. So they can't even confirm what her name was. She is just known as the Duchess. That's, because that's really, what, sad. Yeah, sad. really sad. Yeah, it's really sad. So this woman was aged late 20s or early 30s. She was believed to have arrived in the port town on the... This is, this is going to be awful... The Esberge Ferry from Denmark. Um, I'm going given... to award your word of the week. <laughs> <laughs> the Esberge Ferry. Um, she had regularly travelled between East Anglia and Denmark throughout 1973 and 1974. Apparently, the majority of her clients were men who travelled for work, such as delivery drivers. So Ooh. 10 points to Bob for his point about delivery yeah. men, you know, truck drivers. And didn't they say with the co-ops that it was somebody from kind of mid-Europe, as you called it? Yeah. And this person... Denmark was one of those places, exactly. Um, So this woman, we don't know her name, so I'm just going to call her the Duchess for the the, the rest of this episode. But the Duchess would join those men as they drove across the UK doing their deliveries. 
What, join them and fuck them whilst they're delivering? Well, yeah, she's a prostitute, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has, she has still has like riding these delivery drivers as they're, like, cruising down no, the I don't road. No, I don't think she did it while they were driving. That's quite dangerous. Okay. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, but if you follow the rules of the road, she was doing it while she while he was driving. There's a legit name for that as well. You get prostitutes that are called lizard lots, and um, they're just, they just get into trucks with men. It's swear to God. I love that you straight off know what they're called as well. Um, yeah, I've got the obscurest knowledge. I'm just going to back out now. <laughs> so so this, would, this could explain, if she was going along with the delivery driver, why there was water from Scotland in her system. Um, there, that's also another link between her and this rope and the plastic sheeting because a delivery driver is going to have a load, like we said before, he's going to have a load of old shit in the back of his van. If he needs to dispose of a body, great, you've got some plastic sheeting and you've got some rope. Also, because she was a prostitute, she was quite well known to the men in the area. So getting rid of her head would make it harder to identify her as definitely her because they wouldn't be able to see her face. Um, and again... Oh, mum was lost as shit when you said that. It's <laughs> 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 your off-the-cuff off the kind of, you know, if she'd lost her, like, getting rid of the head. You can't. You definitely can't identify the face when the head's gone. That's, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> I was wondering when I wrote it, you know, like they could identify her from other means. And I was like, no, don't put that in. That's awful. And now I've said it. <laughs> like what? Now I'm worried where you're, what you were meaning yeah. by that. Because obviously she's a prostitute. Oh, okay. Well, what? no, I still don't get it. Uh, naughty um, bit. And I'm, I'm going to go out. I was going to go out on a limb and say, do you mean that they could recognize her vagina? Or <laughs> oh, okay. I'm wondering, like, just generally her body, though. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. They're paid mm. for that body. They've consumed it. Oh, God. They might. <laughs> they might <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, they'd obviously tried to try to kind of hide who she was. Has anybody else ever said vagina on your podcast, or does anybody get bonus points for that? I don't think we've, gone there. I don't we've, think we've said there. vagina yet. No, you're all welcome. <laughs> I did In say wank once, and Mark's face when I said wank. Honestly, he he. Could have <laughs> 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 I'm gonna try and get back like a serious. Um, Sorry, as you were. <laughs> don't apologize. Never apologize. Because the autopsy had revealed that she'd given birth at one point. Um, this could make sense with her being a prostitute as well, because obviously falling pregnant is... What, prostitutes are... Only prostitutes are allowed to get pregnant? No, but it's a bit of a risk of... Yes, <laughs> I guess. Oh, my God, I was trying to get to, like, a serious thing, and you're just... It's a weak point. So. Well, no, I think Mark, it's... God damn it. Mark, come on, you're <laughs> sensible, come on. As our listeners love, fuck off, Mark. Oh, fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are, are you guys getting that put out on a badge or a t-shirt or something at some point? <laughs> I wear the shit out of that. People loved it when I made that little post on Instagram where it was just like, fuck off, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> being being a prostitute, obviously that is one of the issues that you could run into. You could fall pregnant. But or equally, being a prostitute, it would be a little bit more likely that perhaps she would have given the child up for adoption yeah, or yeah. put it into, into care in some way. That that would possibly make sense as to why she hadn't either been reported missing by her daughter or son or didn't have a family to report her missing. Yeah, because agreed. in that line of work that could that could be something that would happen. So the fact that she was also coming from Denmark, like you said, that matched the DNA profile that they had. Um also the fact that she was working on the docks would match up with the fact that she was eating a predominantly fish or shellfish diet. 
<laughs> Pescatarian. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, that, that's fair enough. You know, just catch some bycatch and catch some sailors at the same time. Oh yeah. God. I think she was quite a fishy woman. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I, An I old wife. So I feel sorry for her. I don't. Okay. She's a slut. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, perhaps if people had seen the sort of reports on someone who had been found murdered and there was like a picture of the face or a picture of her, that might be why the killer had removed her head because, you know, the, the papers were going to then show this picture around. And even if you didn't necessarily work at the drop, she might have seen her or if you hadn't used her as a prostitute, might know of her. So Detective Chief Inspector Guy said to the BBC, the Duchess lived in the Great Yarmouth docks. She was well known and a bit of a character. We know she spent some time in custody, but the records have long since been destroyed. And we know people who knew her and spent time with her, but nobody knows her name. The headless body and the Duchess have never been fully confirmed to be one and the same. So the case remains unsolved today. Maybe this woman and the Duchess are two different people and that the Duchess just happened to disappear around the same time. Perhaps they were both victims of the same killer, but the Duchess wasn't found. Or, I think that's a really like that. good point, yeah. Yeah, my personal opinion is I feel like this is the Duchess, and I feel like it's just too many similarities to not be the same person. If you're going by the name the Duchess, you don't want to be known. So it's an easy out of that lifestyle by just not assuming the name Duchess anymore and slyly sneaking mm -hmm. away. That's a really good That's point. That's true. And she might have used one of her contacts who was driving up and down the country to just drop her somewhere new. That is a very good point. She may have just disappeared because she wanted to. Perhaps she just, the Duchess did just make a disappearance and this woman was from somewhere completely different. You know, if the Duchess was a known woman, you would think someone would know that she'd gone missing yeah but at the same time it'd just be all clients so they really give a shit yeah that's true like, well that's the thing like people did say that she'd gone missing she apparently the duchess's like all of her personal belongings were just ditched and she just disappeared and didn't take anything with her um what those personal effects were i'm not sure but people did say that she just disappeared at some point in 1974 so mm. why would she not take at least some of her stuff with her Good case. I don't really have like a theory yeah, on right. it, but I just think it's super sad that somebody can have their head cut off and nobody fucking knows who you are. Mm. It's yeah, I find it weird. Even though, of course, that makes sense. It's just one of those really weird things that there's no other way to identify someone unless you've got familial DNA, etc. Mm. But mm. in the absence of that, you're never going to know who that person was. But and where also, where's her head? head? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, never got found. Bethany, that was amazing. I really enjoyed that. Thank um, you. No, it, it's one of these ones that like, every now and again when you hear a story and you go, mm, tell me more. Yeah. But then there's no more to tell. Mm, it's really sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like when you hear a story but somebody's ripped the last two pages out of the book. You kind of want oh, to know what the, yeah. what the conclusion is. You're very poetic tonight. Isn't he? He loves it. I've not had much dinner and I've had a couple of pints. So here we are. <laughs> Thank you um, so much, guys, for joining us. Of course. We are available on all the social media platforms. We are on Facebook. At Twisted Britain. Twitter. At Twisted Britain. And we're on Instagram. At Twisted Britain. And please do, okay. just anybody who's listening here, just give us a shout. We love new listeners and we want to hear from you. Don't forget you can use our code on the Just Killing Time subscription boxes. So the code is seeingredpod and it gets you 10% off for your subscriptions 
for as long as you want to subscribe. You get a monthly box of goodies, which are true crime related. Um, it's just a brilliant box of some treats. And also coming up to Christmas, if you want to get any gifts for anybody who's a bit of a, a freak like us and enjoys true crime, um, obviously they're great for that sort of thing. I had a look at the, the Killing Time boxes after you guys plugged them in a, a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. And they're amazing. Yeah, they're so good, aren't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm desperate for shots. So I will be using your code. Um, to all our Patreon supporters, we will be sending out a, a little little goodie from the Just Killing Time boxes. So you'll have to keep an eye out for those. So I was going to say, we at Twisted Britain have just had some lovely little badges made. And uh, if you guys are sending stuff out to your Patreons, we would love to send you some of our badges to send to them. That sounds Excellent. amazing. Thank you so much. So <laughs> thank you once again, everybody who has listened today. And thank you to Bob and Nadine for joining us. Thanks, guys. You'll be able thank to hear you. our collaboration with Twisted Britain on their show. And that will be out very soon. We'll thank make you. sure that we tell you on social media when it's going to be. Yeah. And one th- one more thing before we go. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Mark. Oh, <laughs> you Bye. 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 Bye.